You know, I notice, uh, if I could just make a comment for a moment, I notice these words of all of our hymns, the theme that runs through them, the first hymn we sang, and on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praises unending, 10,000 years and forevermore. Next hymn, and when I reach the final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise, he will call me home, the Lord is my salvation. And then we just sang, and when from death I am free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And when from death I am free, I'll sing on. I think the Lord selected this music for all of us today, but I think he especially selected it for you, Susie. He loves you. And your grief over your sister, he loves you. He's very aware of you and what you're feeling. Well, it is good to see you all. And I'm going to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, opening up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And by the way, one other thing I'd like to say this morning. Did you notice, do you notice where you're sitting this morning? Do you notice how there was no congestion as you came in? Did you, did you see how, how smoothly everything flowed this morning? Well, part of that is because Bevron Bedell is now one of our new head ushers. And Bev, I want to say thank you. Maybe we have a round of, yes, for being willing to serve in that position. Now today I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm going to read the first five verses. Uh, And I realize a longer passage is in your scripture because it proceeds, it starts with the end of chapter 3, but I'm just going to start right with chapter chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you this morning and thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. And We confess that, uh, Lord, uh, your mercies are so new, your faithfulness is so great. We come to you this day in our worship to offer you our praise and thanks what we can do and from our hearts uh, to say and express that brings you glory but Lord we are really the beneficiaries because in our communion and fellowship with you when we acknowledge who you are we find ourselves deeply restored and renewed and refreshed in the ways that we need. We were created to live in fellowship with you. And we thank you for it. And may this time be an experience of communion with you, dear Lord, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, to launch us into our passage today, I thought I would just simply ask a series of four questions. Don't overthink these. They're not that hard. The first question is, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the good news of Jesus? And the answer that any kindergartner would say is, 
Jesus. There aren't many kindergartners out there today. The answer is Jesus. That's exactly right. He is the good news. We can just keep this simple. Let me go to the second question. Second question is, what is the good news about Christ? How is it that Christ is the good news, that Jesus is the good news? And your answer is, one word answer, very simple, he is the he is a Savior. That's a great, exactly right. He is the Redeemer. That is a great answer. Now, here's the third question. What does Christ redeem us from? What does he redeem us, redeem us from? Our sins. That's exactly right. He redeems us from our sins. That's very, very good, but I want to encourage you to keep going. And we can think about it in these terms. That at the terrible cost of atoning for our sins on the cross and then rising from the dead, our sinless Savior is the one Redeemer from sin and from death and from the devil and from judgment. He is a great, great Redeemer. And here's the last question. What does our Redeemer Redeem. What does he redeem? And if you say, well, all who turn from our, their rebellion to, and, and, and against God and, and turn to him and embrace Christ as their Savior, that's, that's what he redeems, I would agree. But there is more to it. He is a greater redeemer than that. And I hinted at that when I raised the question this way, when I said, what does he redeem? And the answer to that is that he redeems the entire creation from sin and death and the curse that God placed on the creation after we, for whom he made the creation, to whom he gave the creation as a gift, after we rebelled against him. He is the redeemer of the entire creation. You know, seven times in the first chapter of Genesis, we're told about this creation that God has made. Seven times we read that everything that God created is good, 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 very good. Seven times. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, is not only intended to open our eyes to God, but to open our eyes to all of this as His creation, His good creation that He has given to us, even in spite of sin and death. It is essentially still in its, in its essence as God made it. It is good. And there's so much goodness here. There's so much to enjoy. You say, I question, how? Well, how does, how does the gospel of Jesus show us this? And I would put it to you this way. Wouldn't you agree that if God was somehow to take creation to himself, that would confirm its essential goodness to him anyway, for sure, that he does not despise it, 
that he does not reject it. If he were to somehow take creation to himself, even in spite of sin and death, wouldn't that confirm that? And yet that is exactly what has happened in the incarnation of Jesus. When the word became flesh. You know, this week I was reading the great Athanasian Creed, one of the three fundamental ecumenical creeds that every Orthodox Christian or every Orthodox church subscribes to, and it speaks this way of the word becoming flesh. It says, although he, Jesus, was God or is God and man, yet he is not two, but he's one Christ. And he's one not by the conversion of Godhead into humanity, but by the taking of that manhood into God. That's what the incarnation represents. That's what happened. And it's most remarkable. And surely, this gospel of Christ and who he is, as well as what he does, shows us that God does not reject this creation and that the division between evil and good or between the demonic and the divine is not a division between the physical and the spiritual or between earth and heaven. That is not what the division is. The great and terrible division that exists falls along the line between sin and redemption in every realm. In the spiritual realm, in the material realm, in the heavenlies, on the earth. This material creation remains God's gift to us. And not only to sustain us, but for our enjoyment. The gospel makes true enjoyment possible once more. And that's the strong statement in the sermon today, that the gospel makes true enjoyment of our creation possible once more. Well, how is that so? What are we really talking about today? Well, by his word, by the word of God, he He created us. And by that same word, even Christ, he has now redeemed us. And at the present time, we do wait for Jesus to return. And to see this this creation which God made, to see this redemption of the creation in Christ fully manifested in a renewed heavens and in a new earth. We're awaiting that even as we await the resurrection to see our own status as God's children fully manifested in our glorified bodies. We are waiting for the glory of God to fill the heavens and the earth in ways that we could not have imagined and for his glory even to fill us to the resurrection of our bodies and glorified bodies that we only would know about through the resurrection of Jesus. So there's a waiting that's taking place. But notwithstanding that, part of our worship of God now is to enjoy this creation's good pleasures. So to enjoy them so much 
that we are compelled to cry out with praise and thanksgiving to God. You know, I remember a number of years ago, maybe some of you have done this, but I, I love the mountains. Diane and I are pretty much mountain people and water people, which covers pretty much the gamut of what's on the earth. But anyway, I love the mountains. And, you know, I can just remember about 11 years ago going to Breckenridge, Colorado, going myself up to the mountains and, and walking in the mountains, looking out, looking at the vistas. This has happened time and time again for me. And I just said, to, I had to say, God, you made such a beautiful creation. What a great job you did. Thank you so much. Way to go, God. Now, I wasn't with a hundred other people. I was by myself. Have none of you ever walked out into a field under the in a field under the stars at night? Beauty above, and you just couldn't help yourself? You had to begin to twirl and dance for joy and say, This is so beautiful. And God made this for me? This crying out with praise and thanksgiving to God for the goodness of his creation can be expressed in so many different ways. Steve Cairns talks to me about deep sea coral no one's ever seen but him. How magnificent and how exquisite it is and how it bears witness to the creator. And this praise and thanksgiving is the natural result of our hearts being freed from the turmoil of rebellion against God, from our guilt, from false notions of spirituality and a false dichotomy between spiritual and material. It is godly to enjoy what God has made. It is godly. I mean, it's like holiness. It's like loving. It's like being filled with hope from God. It is godly to enjoy what God has made. And he's made all of this. And God's grace opens our eyes to see this so we can enjoy this creation for what it is, a most powerful revelation of his goodness to us. God's given us five senses. Can you imagine it? Isn't that amazing? Five senses. He hasn't given us one sense from which to enjoy it. And he's given us sunsets for our eyes. He's given us music for our ears. He's given us flavors and textures of food and drink to please our palates. He's given us sweet fragrances to engulf us. He's given us the pleasure of a loving embrace or the gentle caress of a warm breeze and 10,000 other things. And... (laughs) This is, not, this is not sort of a, a quirky side effect 
of evolution. This is the way God made the world. He wants us to enjoy it. He created it to give us pleasure as well as to sustain us and for other reasons. But today, we're focusing on it. This is not an anomaly. There's a reason for beauty. There's a reason for deliciousness. There's a reason for pleasure. Our Creator is a good, good God. We are not in a slave pit. But I have to say that there is another view. And Paul's concern in writing to Timothy was that that view was creeping into the church. And he uses very strong language here, doesn't he? He characterizes it as a doctrine of demons and deceitful spirits. He calls its human teachers insincere liars whose consciences are seared or cauterized. We got a word cauterized from this word. In other words, rendered insensible, insensate. When Paul talks about insincere liars, which is sort of redundant, isn't it? His consciences are seared. What he's saying is that this doctrine of demons and deceitful spirits is being taught by people who are lying. They know they are lying, and they don't care that they are lying. That's exactly what he said. That's what he was teaching. And if you wonder why would anyone do this, it's because it is to their advantage. Now, with language so strong, I surely would expect Paul in the name of some, to name some terrible heresy, like denying the, the deity of Jesus or denying the resurrection. Or I'd expect him perhaps to name some absolutely horrible practice like cannibalism or the killing of children. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He refers to asceticism. And asceticism teaches that the way to reach a higher spiritual plane is by denying oneself earthly, physical pleasures and comforts. Especially those that are related to our strongest bodily appetites. And so marriage, because of sexual pleasure, and eating, the most satisfying foods, because of their pleasure, are typically among the first practices that are forbidden. And those are the practices that Paul singles out here. Asceticism assumes that this material world is evil and that in order to be spiritual, we must be freed from the material or as much as possible from any linkage to the material and to the natural. Now this is a complete, this is a complete misdiagnosis of our problem. Our problem is our rebellion against God. Whether we're angels or people. Whether we're on the earth or in the, in the heavenlies, as Paul referred to them in, as Ephesians. And rejecting his gifts... that would satisfy desires that also come from him is no pathway to higher spirituality but really turns us into hypocrites 
Now, I'm going I'm to say something. I think it's timely, and I think it is fair game. I think it's appropriate. But I realize it's a sensitive issue. In 1139 A.D., the Second Lateran Council, the Roman Catholic Church, passed a law forbidding priests to marry. And the council enshrined celibacy as the highest form of spirituality compared with marriage and sexual relations and made it a prerequisite for anybody who would have a role in the church's ruling class. Now, if the news of the sexual scandals that we're reading are accurate, and they're not just recent, but they've really been piling up recently. It appears that one result of forbidding marriage has been the rise of a ruling class that is riddled. Not everyone in it, but it is a ruling class that is riddled with hypocrisy, with pride and deceit, so that innocents have been victimized. Crimes have been covered up. Predators have been protected. And while it's being said, you know, this is a terrible immorality, it is. But the root problem is not moral. The root problem is theological. A deeply distorted understanding of creation has shaped that ruling class. And when we, in the name of higher spirituality, reject, reject what God has created in nature that is good, that higher form of spirituality will fail. I mean, it cannot succeed. You... You cannot, ideologies, religions, or philosophies will not long endure if they war against nature. They won't, as God made it. It's a good creation. It is a good creation. Jesus taught self-denial, but he was not referring to foods. He declared all of them clean. He ate and drank the sumptuous banquets of sinners, without any scruples. Jesus, like Paul, was celibate. But they both honored marriage and sexual intimacy as God's gift. And they never drew attention to their celibacy, either one of them, as a better way to live. And as we look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the qualifications for overseers, which is a word that is translated most often as bishops, the assumption was that they would be married, by and large, that they would have families. Jesus does not teach us self-denial so that we would deny the goodness of his creation. What he teaches us is to deny our self-centeredness, the self-centeredness, our sinful self-centeredness by which we deny him and abuse the creation for the sake of our lusts. And you know it, the insatiable lust after food, the insatiable lust for sex or anything else, it's not a result of enjoying those things too much. It's a result of failing to enjoy them at all. Everybody knows when you bite into a steak, or for those of you who are vegetarian, when you bite into a carrot, It is the first bite that's the most delicious. It is the first bite that's the best. And you hope that the second bite will be as good as the first bite, but it never is. 
And that the third bite, well, that might be as good. It never is. It's always the first that's best. And the fact is that temperance and the way we conduct ourselves with pleasures makes it possible for us to enjoy the greatest pleasure of that thing and not to abuse it. Well, the text says everything God created for good by God, everything that God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. The Lord, you remember, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord joyfully, he joyfully showed Adam the garden that he prepared for him. With delight, he presented the woman to Adam that he had created for him. And I want to say to you today that whether we recognize it or not, every good and wholesome enjoyment you experience is from God. Every single one. And Jesus redeems us to in part, among other things, to restore our enjoyment of his creation. And by restore, I mean so that our enjoyment culminates in our worship. And so that our worship includes enjoyment. We see that every Sunday. Now, we Protestants, we tend to be a kind of classic. We tend to have a historically a a deep suspicion of aesthetics, of beauty, and of art that's most un- Fortunate, and I think that also is, by the way, a denial of the goodness of the creation. But one thing even Protestants historically, well, that's not true. Well, one thing, though, the Protestants for the most part have not rejected that's beautiful is sound and music. There's physical beauty, uh, the beauty of art. And when you think about this idea that to be restored in our enjoyment of the creation means that our, our enjoyment reaches the level of worship and thanks to God. And also that our worship of God includes enjoyment of this creation. I just say, don't you think, isn't that a big part of what Sabbath rest is about? After six days, creating everything that was created, the Bible says that God rested on the seventh day. Well, what did God do when he rested on the seventh day? He admired all that he made. He enjoyed it. He declared it very good. I'm going to say that God's grace opens our eyes to see the universe for the creation that it is. It is God's gift to us. And those pleasures that we can take from it and that enjoyment that we can take from it is not an anomaly. It goes to the heart of God's purpose in creating it in the first place, which is for us to know Him and His goodness. God's grace not only opens our eyes, God's grace changes us to enjoy God's gifts in ways that ingratitude and lust made impossible. Because ingratitude and lust applied to the good things that God has made results in a profaning of those things rather than an enjoying 
of those things. A ruin of the experience rather than the fulfillment of the experience. God's grace frees us to enjoy what misguided scruples would deny to us. And I want to say individually, you grow up in a home, whatever family of origin you have, you probably have scruples that you grew up with that you were taught to say no to things that you can say yes to. And part of growing up is to realize I can say yes to this even though mom and dad said no to it. And it's not evil. But still I would prefer you play rook rather than poker, okay? God's grace frees us to enter into pleasures that guilt and fear and worry keep from us. The grace of God in Christ wipes away any reason for not living to the full. Life to the full. There is so much for us to explore, so much for us to discover, to taste, to enjoy, to share. There is so very, very much for us to say grace over. I ask if we could have a slide. I don't know. Could we have that slide now? Yes. This is the sum of the sermon today. Bon appetit. Seriously, enjoy yourself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word and all that you've taught us. And uh, I would ask you, Lord, to help us conform our lives and our practices to, to your word. And there are a lot of things that can sound good and that can look good. They can be out of deep traditions within our family or our culture. But, um, but if they deny the goodness of this creation and your invitation to us to partake of what you have made that is good, Lord, we need to set those sides, things aside and be freed, honestly freed from those shackles. Not living under the cloud of a presumed disapproval. Lord, help us to enter in and give back to you gifts that you've given to us. You know, the gifts of art and art and in music in the spoken word of poetry or articulate prose. Lord, to be fully human. And we'll be careful to give you thanks. Lord, enable us as a congregation to embrace the whole world. It is your world. It is God's world. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.